Thank you. Thank you, Pastor JP. And uh, it's not very often that I see you guys two weeks in a row, so hi. Um, um, how many of you were here last week when I spoke? Can I just show hands? All right, so some of you are aware of what I preached on, but I'll just briefly recap because today's message is related to last week's message. So last week I preached on um, fighting or forfeiting your inheritance, fighting or forfeiting um, for the promises that God has given to you. And we looked into Deuteronomy, we looked at Israel, who was about to go and conquer the um, the promised land and take for them what God had promised. But... We also looked at how, like, if we're not in the place of prayer, it's very easy to forfeit God's promises. But when we take faith in the place of prayer, that's where we begin to step into the fullness of everything that God has for us. Now, the way this week's sermon is related to that is I have a sense, and this is not a bad thing, but I have a sense when we heard last week's sermon, we took it very personally for ourselves, which is awesome. You should. God does have individual promises and purposes for your life that you are meant to contend for, that you're meant to believe for and step into. He absolutely has set some things aside for you. And so in one sense, we can take last week's message and go to the place of prayer on our personal, for our personal needs and desires and futures and the promises we feel the Lord has placed for us. But there's also a sense in which last week's sermon, I think, may not have been fully on our radar, which is that we are meant to also contend for corporate promises for the people of God. Israel, when they were contending to walk and step into the promised land, they didn't do so one by one. It wasn't the promised land is for me as an individual. It was the promised land is for us as a people. It's an inheritance for us and my brothers and sisters. And so there's this aspect where we have to ask ourselves as a corporate group of believers, not even just in this church, but in churches across the world, what are we contending for corporately? And maybe a couple of things come to mind, but some of the things that come to my mind is the glory of God. We're contending for people to have a revelation of who God is. We're contending for people to know love. We're contending for people to know healing. We're contending for people to know justice. We're contending for people to really experience what the kingdom of God is like in its fullness. And so when we say we're contending for the promises as a, as a corporate body, part of what we're called to do is have faith and belief for how God is moving, not just in my life, but in the world. And so this week... We're going to look at a passage that kind of instructs us in how to do that. It's not Deuteronomy. We're not going back to Deuteronomy, although we probably could. We're going to go to um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. This is a very famous passage, um, very frequently preached on passage, um, because it has this beautiful hymn about Jesus right in the middle of it. But Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. All right, if you have found it, say, I'm there. Awesome. Okay. So, you know, if you're still finding it, that's okay. All right, starting from verse 1, I will read a verse, and then you can read a verse. It's okay if we don't have the same translation. Just kind of organize chaos together, okay? We can do it. All right, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, 
any affection and sympathy. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. And altogether, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. This very clear, as soon as we read through this, when you hit the last verse, so that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, we're in totally beyond ourselves. Right? As soon as we hit that verse, we're like, wow, what's the reason that I should you know, count myself less significant than other people? What's the reason that I should um, reflect on who Christ is? What's the reason? What's the reason? We hit verse 11 is for the glory of God, that our lives are about the glory of God. And that's something we briefly landed on last week. And here's what I can say about that in short. When we're living for the satisfaction of ourselves and we're only pursuing the promises God has placed in our personal lives, when we're going for the things that are set directly for our achievements or our ambitions or for our desires, we end up hitting a, a what's this called? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is blank. A plateau. We hit a plateau. We've achieved all we can in our careers. We've achieved what we can in our relationships. Maybe in our finances, our financial goals. We've just hit them all. And yet we end up going, ah, oh, there's something more. There's something more. And the reason is because God has designed us to be blessings. He's blessed us to be blessings. And it's even from the very beginning of the word in Genesis, when God promises Abraham like, I'm promising your land. I'm promising that you'll multiply. I'm, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to bless you. He said, I'm going to bless you so that the nations will be blessed. And it's a promise that's repeated. And it's a reminder throughout scripture. Even when God brings Israel into the promised land and he sets them apart, he says, remember to live for my name so that you can be a blessing to the nations. So remember to keep my statue so that you will be a blessing to those around you. So there's this pattern throughout scripture. We're called to be blessings. And if there's, if we just live so that our own needs will be satisfied, part of that block of being like we, that we hit is that we are trying to be our own providers. We hit this part of like trying to satisfy things in our own hand. And when we've done all that we can, it's like we've taken the place of God, and so like now what's left? But when you begin to love, live on behalf of other people and to love out of the love of God, you begin to actually need him a lot because it's not just for you anymore. It's much more out of your control than before. 
So this is the kind of like setting we have as the people of God, the necessity to be able to live in that place. And I'll just give you a little background on the passage that we just read. So Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. Paul is telling the Philippians about how there are people in the world who are striving for their own ambition and he's exhorting them to not be that way. He's like, don't live for yourself, but live for others. And this is the context in which he begins to say this. Now, the first thing we need to know from this passage is in verse 1. So let's all look back to verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, pause. When Paul says, if, so if there is, hey, so actually causing the people to reflect and go, okay, so is there comfort? Is there love? Is there participation? Is there affection? Is there sympathy? And then the resounding answer has to be yes, there is. If you've known Christ, you've known comfort. If you've known Christ, you've known love. If you've known Christ, you've known the Spirit, you've known affection, you've known sympathy. And we know because that God is an eternal God, we have an eternal access to those things. It's not a resource that dries up. It's not something that falls short. It's not something that can disappoint, but it's an eternal God with an eternal depth of those things. You know how we talk about like the love of God being wide and, and high and, and long, like in every dimension? It's, it's meant to represent the depth, the, the endlessness of that which we get to know. So here we are, and Paul is saying this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, he's calling on the, the hearer to go, is there? All there is, endlessly. I have access endlessly. And then that based on that, he begins to instruct the Philippians. point today in this passage based on the fact that you are rich with resources. So my first point today in this passage, we are rich with resources. We have no lack. We may feel like we have lack in many cases. And that is often just a lie of the enemy come in to steal what is meant to be ours, come in to steal what is meant to be a blessing to others. And he makes us focus on all the things that we don't have. But the truth is that we have no lack. We are rich. We are rich. Everyone say, I am rich. Turn to your neighbor. You are rich. Praise God. We are. We are rich. If you are part of Christ, you have everything you need. Now, that's only part of the story. You may well recognize that you are very different than the person next to you. You can probably think of right now something about yourself that's a gifting that's pretty unique to you. And the person next to you, you may know a little bit about them. Maybe they're new, new and you don't know them, but you know. Just go ahead and ask them, is there anything that's unique to you? Any gift, any talent, any quirk? Go ahead. Go ahead. Ask your neighbor. All right. That's awesome. So you've learned, you've learned a little bit about each other today, which is great. 
But what you may notice is you very likely don't have any that thing in common. And there, are, there is a chance that you might have sat next to someone who like shared the same thing as you did. But very likely you'll recognize, oh, like we're unique in that way. And that's a design of God to gift you a grace that another person doesn't have. So if we have endless access to all the things that are in God, and yet we are gifted also with graces that are unique to each of us, then to make full access to all the resources we have, we have to be in community and fellowship. There is a delightful inheritance that is actually in the people of God. That the people of God, having a body of believers, is actually part of our gift, part of our inheritance that we have. But yet, because we're so used to being with people who are kind of like us, we miss out on part of our inheritance. It's very challenging to get to know someone who's a different personality, comes from a different background, has a sense of humor that you completely don't get, you know? And yet, investing in those people, you'll begin to access a grace that you could never access just on your own. And this is part of the strategy of God to bring love into fullness, to bring unity into fullness is to just spread these gifts throughout the body so that we have to access each other to access our full inheritance. And so this is difficult because, you know, some people rub you the wrong way. Sandpaper people. (laughs) Sandpaper people, people who rub you the wrong way. And there's nothing you can do about that (laughs) except recognize that they are my brother and sister in Christ. And in humility, I can know that they have something to offer. And I can learn from them, even as they can learn from me. doesn't mean we're going to be best friends, but, but brother, sister, I honor you. But teach me about your way of seeing the world. Teach me about your way of knowing God. What did you learn from God this week? How has God been speaking to you? One of my favorite questions that I used to get asked in college by my best friends, it was like I'd walk into the, my home and they'd instantly be like, Emily, what, God, what has God been speaking to you? And sometimes I dreaded that question because if I hadn't been in my quiet time or something, I'd be like, I don't know what God is speaking to me. But actually just simply them asking, what has God been speaking to you? It caused me to reflect on God's presence in my life, his grace in my life, and then I'd share And then they'd be like, wow, I never saw that before. And I'd be like, really? Oh, that's cool. And they're like, wow, that's really powerful. Emily, can I share with you what God has been saying to me? We're like, yeah, that's do it. I want to learn what, what has God been saying to you? And that way we begin to build each other up in love, access the understanding of God's kingdom, understanding of his character, a motivation and a desire to show that to other people. There's nothing like sharing testimonies with each other and revelation of what God has been doing in your life to really motivate you to spread his glory. But it only happens when we start to bridge barriers, to deal with a little bit in rubbing the wrong way, and to submit ourselves humbly to learning from other people. In fact, when I was teaching kids, I used to be a kindergarten teacher, not the uh, easiest thing I've ever done. I'm sure a lot of you who teach here know that. Um, you will find 
that you think you're going to like the kids in class who are the easiest to deal with. Because, you know, they don't give you any trouble. You don't have to put them in timeout. You don't, you know, you never have to tell them what to do. They're always ready with their pencil. They're always listening, you know. But the ones that I ended up falling in love with the most, who I had the deepest place in my heart for, were the ones who gave me the most trouble. They were the troublemakers. The ones who I was like, oh, you have gray hairs because of you, you know? <laughs> Those kids, by the end of the year, they were the ones that I was like so sad to be leaving. And so sometimes there are people in our midst who are kind of like, I feel like I'm not going to get along with that person. I feel like I don't know them that well. I feel like we don't have anything to talk about. But if we invest with our sandpaper people, those people will begin to actually become very fond to us because there's just something unique about learning in that way of dealing with that friction that develops love. The second thing we need to know is that when we are rich in inheritance as a body in Christ, that we are called to be generous. So that's point number two. Point number one, we are rich with resources. Number two, we are called to be generous as those who are rich. So if you look with me at verse two, three, and four, it reads this way. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, I don't know about you, but it's like, I think you repeated yourself a lot here, Paul. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. He basically said, be, uni be unified like four times. And then he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, that each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And it's this like, take what you have, and plant it. Go extend it. Go put it to work. Go see fruit. Don't keep it to yourself. This is an exhortation from Paul. Now, I will say that there's one unique thing about Paul repeating himself in this phrase, though. He says, same mind, full accord, one mind. We can understand that to mean a united focus. They were called to have a united focus. But then he says, um, the same love. And the word here is agape. Now, I know we've heard a lot preached about the differences between loves, phileo, agape, like that there's a, a bunch of them. But what we sometimes the differences between the loves is kind of blown out of proportion. What we can say for agape for sure, the way it's distinct, absolutely distinct from something like brotherly affection or love towards friends, is that it has no mutuality. Say with me, no mutuality. That means it's a love that does not expect anything in return. It's not a love where you invest to get something back. It's a love that invests and is like, I've done my job. And this is the love that Christ had for us when he died on the cross. He invested before we knew his name, before we knew what he had done for us, before we could ever respond, and in fact, maybe ever respond. He died for us. That's agape love. When we were completely ungrateful, that's agape love. And this is the love that Paul is telling us to be united in. 
So if we take our sandpaper people and we continue it into this point, it's like, love your sandpaper people without ever respecting, ever expecting them to love you back. Be willing to extend your gifts into their life without ever feeling like you're going to get a return. Then that that is a love that unites. It's not a, necessarily a mutual give and take love that unites. It's a love that invests without expecting that unites. Now let's look at some of the words he used when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Ambition is something, it's like achievement for ourselves. Ambition is not necessarily bad. But when it's ambition for ourselves, it can be bad. I know that was confusing, right? So I'll explain. <laughs> if you have ambition to sow and to love, that's not a bad thing. But it is an outward focus. When you have ambition to store up for yourself something, that's a negative focus. So when he says, don't, when Paul says don't have ambition, he's saying, don't use your ambition to serve yourself. Don't use your ambition to build your own kingdom. Don't store it up just so that you can have like a nice pool of access of things that you have access to. He said, rather be ambitious to give it all away. Be ambitious to, I mean, for instance, be ambitious to be successful so that you can use it to bless others. Be ambitious to be responsible so that you have resources extra to give. Be ambitious to, um, to serve so that you can build others up in love. This is, so we have to distinguish between those two ambitions. And then conceit is like vanity, personal glory, which is very similar. So he's just, he's emphasizing this. So he's saying, let go of your appearance, how you appear to other people. Let go of your power that you could use for yourself. Let go of any glory you could get from your life. And, and kind of like discover what happens. He also uses, he says, count others more significant than yourself. Now, this is a phrase that I often struggled with when I was younger because I was like, somehow that negates my significance, God. If I count another person more significant than me, then how am I significant? And it just bothered me because I wanted to be significant. And I think we all have a part in our lives where we want to be significant. We also want to be significant to others. And I think that's part of the, the mutual needing of each other that God has knitted us together with. But, you know, so I'm struggling over this phrase and going, ah, I want to be significant. So I don't want to think other people are more significant than me. <laughs> it's also prideful. So, you know, that was my big struggle. <laughs> um, but then I realized that when we're counting others more significant, what we're saying is, God, you have all my bases covered. I don't need to take care of myself. Therefore, I can afford to expend my resources on behalf of other people. There is a lie that constantly creeps in that says, I need to take care of me first. Got to look out for number one. And then I can take care of you. But when Paul is saying, hey, count others more significant, he's saying, God's got you covered. So don't worry about yourself. Worry about others. Now, you don't have to like them to worry about them and invest in them. 
You don't even have to agree with them on anything. This is a big challenge, especially in a context of churches. Because so many churches compete with one another. So many churches struggle to come out on top as who has the pure gospel. You know? It's not very loving. It's like we're going to use our resources to prove that we're better. Which is completely not what Paul is saying here. He's like, whether you have a pure gospel or not, use your resources to build your brothers and sisters up. Which is very challenging for us, especially in a context like Korea. Hmm. He's also talking about not just those distinctions between churches, people we may or may not agree with, but people we, you mindless, people in prison, the orphan, the widow, people that you might kind of feel awkward around or embarrassed being around. I remember um, when I was in college, I went to a friend's church and we were kind of having a small group meeting and then um, this drunk man walked in. And they let him stay in our meeting. And I was so offended. I was like, do you not care about my safety enough to kick this man out? That's really how I felt. It's like, do you not care that he's interrupting our meeting? And then my friend looked at me and he was like, Emily, if he stays, he'll experience the love of God. We're going to let him stay. He might smell like alcohol. But that's okay. And don't worry, your safety is not impaired. We're here. It's like, you're right. <laughs> and so there's, like, there are some uncomfortable situations. And I will tell you that when God begins to move in a people's midst and he begins to show up, awkward people are coming. <laughs> I promise you, uncomfortable people are coming. Because they're desperate for love. And God's love has shown up somewhere. And so part of our giving is like, we got to get beyond the barrier of, of stigma, of being uncomfortable, and what it looks like to love others and extend our resources to people who will never be able to give it back. And to be patient with understanding through the awkwardness. Because there will be lots of it. And so this is, this is part of counting others more significant than yourselves. I value you. God values you. I'm taken care of. Let me take care of you. And then there's this issue of humility. He references humility. And the church, we have a bad understanding of this word. We have false humility everywhere. That like false humility being like, oh, no, like it's not me. It's not me. I didn't do anything. You know, Pastor Susie talked about it a couple weeks ago. That's the humble brag. By saying, no, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. You are actually drawing attention to yourself. So we have this issue of what is true humility? When Paul says humility, what does he mean? And I will, the simplest way I can put it for you is humility is an issue of priority. It doesn't mean that you are any less it doesn't mean that you didn't take part with God in doing something awesome. You can say, like, praise God, I was used. Like, I did invest in that. But issue of priority doesn't really matter. It was God's gifts working through me. And two, issue of priority, 
It doesn't really matter if I did it as long as you've been seen and known and loved. So there's an issue of priority and humility, which is not considering yourself less, but considering others more. It's understanding you are part of a worldwide community of sinners. You know? And I think sometimes the church should be, you know, known as that. Worldwide community of sinners dependent upon God. Ooh. So it's just knowing that I'm not better than you. Humility is knowing I'm not better than you in any way. God has used me on your behalf, but God will also use you on my behalf. And recognizing that there's an interchange and that I'm not super special because God used me, but because God is using all of us. It's not, it's not using our resources to our own advantage. Now, there's one thing that I would like to address within this that's very prevalent in our culture. It is hashtag love yourself. Hashtag treat yourself. Oh, I really have, and this is me you know, being honest, I really have a problem with those hashtags. I've never been able to get over them. And this is just because I feel like they direct our attention in the wrong way. It is very true that unless you have self-respect, self-esteem, self-confidence, you cannot love other people well. That's, that's absolutely true. If you look down on yourself, you won't be able to love someone else well. If you're critical of yourself, you'll be critical of others. It's true. So you do need to have a self-respect where you appreciate who you are, that you're made in God's image, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Just tell your neighbor, I'm awesome. Just wanted you to know that. You may have your weaknesses and your flaws, but you are awesome. So there is, there is a spec where you, when we say love yourself, yes, we mean respect yourself. Understand that you are important. You are significant. And yet, loving yourself, actually loving yourself first before others means that all your resources that should be going this way are going this way. Does that make sense? So part of actually living as the people of God and loving others, it's not love myself first so that I can love others. It's loving others as God has loved me. You don't need to love yourself and show love to yourself so much as you need to sit in the presence of God and read his word and know his love for you. And then go love others. It's not so much that like I need to like make sure that I'm taken care of again. It's not this. It's sitting in the presence of God, reading his word, praying, being in fellowship with believers. I'm taken care of in God. And then going out to love others. And the treat yourself thing, you do need to have boundaries. Absolutely. You do need to learn your limits. Absolutely. But there also has to be an aspect of understanding where your resources are going. So sometimes, when we're being challenged with this, go out and give your resources. Go out and invest. Watch fruit grow. There's a lie that comes to us that says, I don't have any extra to invest. I don't have it. Whether it's time, money, or service, energy, I don't have it. Can I tell you that there are three reasons that could be the case? One, 
it might be the case that you feel like you don't have extra because you're not tapped into the overflow of God. And it's just time to get back into that overflow again. Connect with believers. Encourage one another. And speak life over one another. And get back into that overflow. But the other ones is just not taking proper inventory. One, not taking proper inventory is focusing on the wrong thing. Not realizing how much you do have and being grateful for it. And instead focusing on what you don't have. Being like, I don't have anything, God. And God's like, look over here. And the other thing is not taking inventory correctly of where the resources are going. Do you have enough? Where, where is your time going? Where are your finances going? Where is your energy going? It might not be that you don't have enough. It just might be it's been misdirected. So there's a challenge for us to take inventory from season to season. Where we're sowing might be different from season to season. And then ask God, where can I create extra? Where in my life can I take what I was directing towards me and use it outward towards others? This is all because we've been designed to be pipelines. And if this, this is the best image I can think of, is that if you are a pipeline filled with water and you've just stored it up for yourself, you put a cap on it, it will just be full, it won't go anywhere, it will grow stale, it will grow bacteria and viruses. Yuck. But if you were to release the cap off of it and let it flow to other people, the flow into the pipeline would be constant. The lie of the enemy is to say if you lift the cap off, if you begin letting this out, it won't fill back up again. But it's not true. It's so not true. When you lift the cap off, the water will flow. There's so it will, it will come. As you give away, it'll come in. As you pour out, it'll come in. There are so many instances in my life where I've been challenged by this. And what I've discovered is in the moments where I've been like, Emily, you need to have boundaries. <laughs> you need to not. And in some cases, I truly do need to have boundaries and not say yes to everything. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Don't say yes to everything, okay? But <laughs> you need to say yes to some things. Okay, that's all I'm saying. You need to say yes to some things, not to everything. In the moments where I've been challenged to say yes to something that I really feel like God is placing on my heart. In the moments where I say, you know what? No. I'm miserable. <laughs> and I realize that I'm joyless. But in the moments that I say yes and I start letting it flow, there's joy. And there's more than enough for me and for them. And so we have to shift the way we think about our resources and how we invest them. Letting ourselves be pipelines and not blocking it off. Now, there's part of us, another lie that comes to mind is, I have rights. I don't know what right comes to mind in your mind right now. I have a right to comfort. I have a right to relax. I have a right to spend a little extra on myself. I have a right to ABC. You do. I affirm that. Yes, you do. But the biblical pattern is of people who gave up their rights. You have Jesus who comes and he washes the disciples' feet. And when he washes their feet, he says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. 
Now, when he refer- he didn't say I, he didn't say I. He said the Son of Man. Why does he reference the Son of Man? I will suggest to you that when he says the Son of Man, his disciples think of every prophecy about the Son of Man in the Old Testament, which describe a coming King. So when he says Son of Man, they think King. And then when he says Son of Man, i.e. King, has come to serve, not to be served. It's like, whoa! But the King has every right to be served. Every right to be served and worshipped. And he says, no, I've come to serve. And he completely forsakes all of his rights on the cross. His right to preserve his life. His right to condemn every sinner and send them to hell. His right to take all authority and obliterate anything he wants. He gives up all of his rights. His right to glory. To have a name of his power, of his glory. But instead he comes as a humble human, as a carpenter, as a no one. He gives up, he chooses to give up his rights. So yes, he had rights as the, as the Messiah, as the king of everything. The Lord of lords. He had rights and he did not make use of them. Paul does the same thing. You're reading 1 Corinthians. Paul begins to write in chapter 9 about how he's, he has the right to get married. He has the right to enjoy certain foods, to enjoy certain drinks. And he chooses not to. And then he gives a reason. He says, so that the gospel may be furthered, I give up my rights. We can just take it like gospel may be furthered and it can be kind of like ambiguous, but let's make it a little bit more specific. I give up my rights so that people can know love. Sometimes us insisting that we have to hang on to our rights inhibits love. Insisting that we have a right to our comfort inhibits love. Insisting that we have a right to conserve our energy may inhibit love. And there's a time and a place to say, in this season, in this way, I choose to give up my right to this. So that love can flourish. So that God will be known. So the third point is this, is that true generosity, if we are rich with resources and we're called to be generous, true generosity comes by following the example of Christ. It's impossible to do on our own. It's impossible to do with even having high ideals and nice things to live up to. It can only come from a revelation of that Christ gave everything for me and did not save anything for himself. Let's read verses 5 to 11 one more time. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We'll stop there. When it says emptied himself, 
I want to make very clear that this is not God giving up his godhood. He doesn't become any less of who he is. Referring to the emptying of the God. But when it says it empties himself, it, it's a phrase referring to the emptying of the power for yourself or glory for yourself. This action of humility. So he comes, he empties himself. So he, we can think of it this way. It's one of the things we talk about in seminary is that he remains fully God, but he actually puts on to his, his godliness limitations. He adds to his godliness weakness. That he takes it on himself in humility. It's a little bit difficult to think about. But that he's fully God and fully man. Fully God and yet not choosing to use all of his godness. If that makes more sense. And then becoming a servant in that position. Pastor David, a few weeks ago, he preached on the prodigal son. And he talked about how the elder brother was called to take care of the younger brother and failed to. And that Jesus Christ is our true elder brother. The person who used his own resources to bring us back. The person who gave himself on our behalf. The example, like, that he is our true elder brother. And we can think about it this way, is that when the inheritance got divided, some of it went to the younger brother, some of it went to the older brother. And then the younger brother squandered his portion of the inheritance and then comes back and there's a party celebrating him. And then the older brother gets angry. Why? Because those resources that are now being used to celebrate the younger brother are his resources. When the inheritance was divided, what wasn't given to the brother became his. And now the father is using those resources to bless the younger brother. And the older brother's angry. Those are my resources. What are you doing? You never did that for me. Then he's offended. How dare you use my resources? You know? And there's, there's this message in between the lines of like, he should have used his resources willingly. Jesus Christ was our true elder brother who came and did everything for us. And yet he's also calling us to be true elder brothers and to not withhold. But to you, in the same way that God used his resources to reach out to us, that we use our resources to reach out to others. To be the true elder brother. Does that make sense? But it's not easy because again, there's this like, well, if I give it up, there will be lack. If I give it up, there won't be enough. But the truth is there's always more than enough. We, we cycle back to the beginning of where we started. The word of promises. We, that we're not islands. We're not just contending for individual promises. We are collectively pressing forward into God together. We're asking for the kingdom to be released together and that we each have a part to play 
and that as we each take our place, as we each release what we have, that our abundance will meet someone else's need. And their abundance will also meet our need. And our collective abundance will meet the world's need as well. And this is part of what we get to be called into as a community when we contend for promises. And we contend for the glory of God. That in our world of my salvation, it's not just about me, but it's about others. That we've been saved on behalf of others. Now I will give one short warning about this. We're not called to do this to earn God's favor. And we're not called to do this to be saved. God already saved us and he's already given us our favor. As you're being a blessing to other people, it does not earn you a blessing. You, we sometimes think God will bless me if I do this. God will bless me if I set this time aside for him. God will bless me if I live in this way. But that's not, that's not the message. God's already blessed you. You have access to everything in his house. You're just simply called to be a blessing out of his love, to know his love and then to love. Now, another warning. When we seek to discern whether to say yes or no, Sometimes it's difficult. Do I say yes to investing or not? If we feel like it's an obligation because we can't say no, then that's a problem. That's a, a good idea that you should probably say no if you feel like you can't say no. Like, oh, like I can't say no because if I say no, like my mom will be mad and like so-and-so, like, or I feel like I'm obligated to serve in this way. That like kind of that obligation, that's weird of like, I just can't say no because what will people think or like it'll cause problems, that kind of thing. Then that's not a good way to make a decision. The way to make a decision is knowing that you can say no and choosing not to. That's generosity that overflows. It's not feeling like obligation to fill every need, not obligation to always say yes when there is a need but knowing that as the lord leads as you experience his love that you get to share it and you could say no but you say yes so we'll just recap a little bit of what we talked about the first we are rich in resources in christ and in one another and that as we are rich, we are called to be generous with those around us, those within our walls, those outside our walls, our sandpaper people, all of them. And that also, that this true generosity doesn't come from ourselves, but comes from reflecting on what Christ has done for us. Inasmuch as he gave up our rights, our gratitude and knowledge of his love in that can inspire true generosity to other people. When I could say no, but I say yes to learn humility and love in that way. And this is where God has called us to contend as a community for his kingdom, because that's what his kingdom looks like. It's only in this way that we can contend for his kingdom, actually, because that's what his kingdom looks like. When he has a promise to bless the nations, when he has a promise to reveal his glory, it can only be fulfilled in this way, 
when we say, I will follow the example of Christ. As he gave himself up for me, I will also give myself up for others. And this is a huge challenge. So it's not going to be done overnight. It's not going to be like, yes, we're all instantly selfless. This is impossible. (laughs) We will perpetually be selfish our entire lives and continually have to learn how to give our rights up over and over again. It will always be tested, always. We have to stay in the place of desiring God to be revealed enough for us to take the cost. But there is an aspect where we want to step into this right away, as soon as possible, to really be a living body that represents Jesus well. So I'd like to take this time to give just some reflection. We're going to take a time to ask the Lord. And you're, feel free to journal or do what you need to do. But I'm just going to give you two minutes and ask the Lord, God, in this season, what rights are you challenging me to give up on behalf of others? What resources do I need to take inventory of? What resources do I have at my disposal that I can use? How can I grow in the likeness of Christ this season? So why don't you all bow your heads with me?